I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Well, everybody knows that I like kids better than people. But did you know that I like tiny horses better than full-size horses? It's high noon for Wednesday, February 17th, 2021. Follow the podcast on Parlor and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. On the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm Your Moderator. And you can join the discussion thread at t.me slash Be Reasonable Discussion. So today is the 28th full day of Barack Obama's third term as served by the half-dead, demented, degenerate, ventriloquist, dummy, fake proxy president Joe Biden who is overwhelmingly compromised by the Chinese Communist Party to the point where he calls their concentration camps, now filled with two million Muslim Uyghurs, where they are re-educated out of their religion, where the women are raped, sterilized, and their heads are shaved to sell their hair to Western consumers. He thinks this is a difference in cultural norms, which I'm not sure is more insulting to the Uyghurs, the Chinese people who he said have now concentration camps as a cultural norm, or to everyone else who has to listen to a man overwhelmingly compromised by the Chinese Communist Party say things like this in support of the Chinese Communist Party, who now, <laughs> right now, has two million Muslim Uyghurs in concentration camps. And we have a U.S. president who seemingly has no problem with that and is absolutely hamstrung about doing anything to stop it. Because, as I said, he's overwhelmingly compromised by the Chinese Communist Party. He is also the patriarch of one of the worst, most corrupt families in American history and the father of one of the world's most despicable sons. So congratulations, Anderson Cooper. What a town hall you put on. You really got to the bottom of what the American people care about. So Joe Biden apparently likes kids better than people, which makes sense. He doesn't realize that kids are also people and that maybe they don't want to be touched by a creepy old man or sniffed by a creepy old man or have to go in uncomfortable showers with their father. As Ashley Biden said that she was forced to do in her diary. So congratulations again, America. You picked the nice guy, the very, very nice guy. Well, 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 what else is happening in the world today? Let's see from the 
news that I absolutely love, even though it's terrible news. Let's turn to Politico yesterday, where their reporter, Josh Gerstein, wrote an article with the headline, Judge Refuses to Ban Capital Riot Suspect from Twitter and Facebook. Thank you, Judge. Wouldn't want to do that, especially to a rioter of color. Got to get his message out there. Was he inside the Capitol on January 6th? Yes. Did he organize rioters? Also, yes. Who am I talking about? You already know the name. It's John Sullivan. Here we go. A federal magistrate judge has turned down prosecutors' effort to block a man accused of participating in the Capitol riot from using Twitter and Facebook, but just ordered him to end his involvement with a business he founded that the Justice Department says promotes and glorifies violent protests. The defendant, John Sullivan of Utah, has maintained that he attends raucous demonstrations as a journalist, sharing videos through his Insurgents USA website and social media platforms. Sullivan's defense attorney even filed invoices with the court showing that CNN and NBC each paid Sullivan's firm $35,000 last month for rights to video he filmed of chaotic scenes outside and inside the Capitol, including the deadly shooting of protester Ashley Babbitt by a U.S. Capitol Police officer. Now let's go ahead and stop right there. There's a lot in this paragraph. Insurgents USA, that's John Sullivan's company, as I've been saying, their video was used in the impeachment by the Democrat managers to try to show how violent and deadly the rioting was. John Sullivan took that video. Who was right next to him? CNN and NPR photojournalist Jade Sacker, who was intending to direct a documentary on John Sullivan and his brother and their activism to be shown this fall on Netflix. So John Sullivan was in the Capitol riot to try to get footage and make himself a hero of this event. And of course, he would have been glorified in the documentary. We all know how this stuff works. Thank you, Netflix, for spending more money and putting out more propaganda. It's great that you've given the Obamas and Susan Rice and the Clintons millions of dollars. Or is that Spotify? Or is it both? Man, it's getting really tough to keep track of all the media organizations funneling money to Barack Obama and the people around him for their advisory roles, naturally. So he filmed the chaotic scenes outside and inside the Capitol. Did he have a press pass to enter the Capitol? I'm confused about how so many members of the press were inside the Capitol taking pictures of the very violent rioters while the very violent riot was happening. 
John Sullivan, of course, was arrested and then let go because he was being paid to be there by CNN and NBC. He also had footage of the deadly shooting of protester Ashley Babbitt. Isn't that odd? He was just right there at the perfect time. Huh. Really amazing that a paid rioter whose footage was used in the impeachment was just right there to film the only shooting of the entire event. And it's still just normal. I wonder if he was able to give some eyewitness testimony about what happened to Ashley Babbitt. It would be great to explain a few of the uncertain seeming elements of that video. Back to the article. However, prosecutors contend that Sullivan is not a mere bystander or chronicler of protests. Instead, they say, he actively encourages violence, telling viewers how to make Molotov cocktails and evade identification by police. He was arrested last month on charges stemming from the January 6th riot, including interfering with police during a civil disorder. Sullivan was later hit with an additional charge, obstruction of Congress. At a hearing on Tuesday afternoon on Sullivan's release conditions, Washington-based magistrate judge Robin Merriweather split the difference between prosecutors seeking to eliminate Sullivan's presence on the United States' most popular social media platforms and a defense lawyer who decried what he said was an assault on his client's constitutional rights. Very interesting. So the prosecution knows that Sullivan is a criminal. This is his history. He's been involved with these riots, AKA very peaceful protests before. He's taught people how to make Molotov cocktails and taught them how to evade identification by police. Now, if he was white and a Trump supporter, they would be holding this up as an example of an extremely dangerous domestic terrorist. He's literally teaching rioters how to commit more violence. And we're talking about the conditions of his release and his ability to post on social media. Now, at the same time, we're being told by the government that there is no greater threat to America than white Trump-supporting domestic terrorism. So it's okay for him to be out in public, even though he's clearly a domestic terrorist, no problem. And while the social media companies are telling us that jokes about election fraud on Valentine's Day pose a risk of violence, whatever John Sullivan is posting on social media does not post that pose that same risk, even though he posts about making Molotov cocktails and he used Twitter to post about getting people to his counter protest event on January 6th at the Capitol. This is okay. I am rejecting the broader prohibition on Twitter and Facebook and encrypted social media platforms, Meriwether said also ordering that Sullivan be taken off 24-hour location monitoring via GPS. Yeah, 
Totally. Good call, Judge. However, the judge said Sullivan, quote, is to no longer work for Insurgents USA, unquote, will have his internet use monitored by probation officials, and will be banned from using any social media platforms to incite riots, violent protests, armed conflict, or violence. He's also under home detention. Wow. What a harsh sentence. He's not allowed to incite violence anymore. Just like everybody else, right? I mean, aren't we all banned from inciting violence? Isn't that the whole thing? But John Sullivan especially is not allowed to do it. Got it. Sullivan has become one of the more prominent individuals charged in the Capitol riot because of the interviews he did with news outlets like CNN and a vigorous debate about whether he's an Antifa provocateur. Figures such as former President Donald Trump's ex-lawyer Rudy Giuliani have pointed to Sullivan as evidence that leftists were part of the mob that stormed the Capitol. Liberal activists have denounced those claims as disinformation. Well, obviously, they're not disinformation, for fuck's sake. Like, Politico includes this line to make it sound like there's some doubt about what John Sullivan did. There's no doubt. Sullivan's politics remain murky. (laughs) He has described himself as an opponent of Trump and a backer of Black Lives Matter. However, BLM activists in Utah have disowned him, saying he seemed intent on provoking violence at protests. Oh, so he's got a history of it that Black Lives Matter knew about, but now they've disowned him. Got it. They've also noted that Sullivan often seems to work in tandem with his brother James, who spoke at a right-wing Proud Boys event. Oh, that's interesting. So it's possible that the Proud Boys aren't all just these rogue, racist, white supremacist Trump supporters. Got it. We're, we're, We're told that Sullivan may not be a bad guy because his brother is a bad guy. So maybe they're just two centrists caught up in the mix trying to make a dollar out of 15 cents, a dime and a nickel. Defense attorney Stephen Kirsch denounced the prosecution's initial proposal as wildly excessive and insensitive to the role that Facebook and Twitter play in the lives of many young people. Get that? Twitter and Facebook are too important to John Sullivan as a young person for him to be banned from the platforms, even though he uses those platforms to spread information about rioting and teaches people how to make Molotov cocktails. But he wouldn't want to be cut off from his friends. The social media limits are incredibly oppressive, incredibly overbroad, and serve no purpose other than to basically oppress Mr. Sullivan, Kirsch said. Mr. Sullivan is very involved in exchanging ideas amongst his peers, and this is how he does it. Oh, so what they're saying is that Mr. Sullivan being taken off of the social media platforms would be an infringement on his free speech rights. And that would be oppressive. So therefore, the court can't do it, and the court sided with him. 
Well, that's really interesting because Twitter and Facebook make it explicit that they can remove you if you do these things. It's only bad when the law does it. So Twitter and Facebook can censor whoever the hell they want, but America's own justice system can't because that would be oppressive. That would be an infringement on John Sullivan's rights. Now, I have been told by very woke people that if you question election fraud, you relinquish your rights. If you question election fraud, you are risking violence, public violence, political violence. So my rights can be put at risk for the things that I say, even though I have never encouraged violence and I'm not spreading misinformation, I can be banned. But John Sullivan can't. And now he has the law on his side. Insurgents USA is absolutely the instrumentality through which Mr. Sullivan committed the relevant acts, she said. It is Mr. Sullivan's reason for being there and for his criminal participation in the riot. At one point during the hearing, Meriwether questioned whether Sullivan's videos are urging protest or rioting. There is a distinction, she said. Wong said that Sullivan's videos unambiguously urge violence and attacks on police. She said he serves as a sort of expert resource for rioters. Under the guise of journalism, he is engaged in and incited violent activity, including the kind of destructive society we saw on January 6th, the prosecutor said. She said that Twitter and Facebook sought to block some of Sullivan's accounts, but that he has a variety of handles that cross-promote one another, one of those being Jaden X, by the way, another video source for the House manager's impeachment case. Wong also noted that the request to ban Sullivan from Twitter and Facebook was actually narrower than the conditions a magistrate in Utah imposed on Sullivan, banning him from use of 13 different sites or platforms. She also mentioned that Sullivan's former counsel agreed to that. I cannot account for why the lawyers representing Mr. Sullivan in Utah agreed to these conditions, Kirsch said. And this is the end of the article. This is amazing. So Sullivan has already dealt with this in a legal context and been banned from platforms, but now he can't be. Even though the social media companies are ramping up their censorship and banning of anyone just for expressing and posting facts about the election fraud and about the riots, they can be banned immediately. Remember, Twitter and Facebook made it a new condition of being on their platforms. The day of the event, they made it so that no one could share photos or videos of the riots. Why? Because they wanted the only source of people's knowledge about that event to be the mainstream media and the videos that they had, that they edited, and that they showed. Why? Because that's how to make it look the worst. This is not under dispute. This is where we are right now. And staying on the subject of things you're not allowed to say on social media, boom, segue, 
best segue in weeks. Got it. Nailed it. Yesterday, Project Veritas came out with a video of a leaked video conference call featuring none other than Mark Zuckerberg. And this is from last year sometime. I think it was in the summer, perhaps. But Mark Zuckerberg said that there was some doubt about the vaccines and how they might modify DNA. Well, that's very interesting that he would say this sort of thing to the people in his, I don't know, executive circle. I'm not sure exactly who he was talking to, but you got to figure it was higher ups at Facebook. Now, a couple months later, he was on television with Anthony Fauci, and they cleared up the fact that the vaccine does not modify your DNA. And that's fine. I'm actually not sure what the answer is. We can get this thing fact-checked. Tim Poole did an interview with uh, James O'Keefe from Project Veritas last night and was talking about how it actually is not true that the vaccine modifies and that Mark Zuckerberg was just misinformed when he said that originally. Now, Tim Poole might be right, but Tim Poole is not the sort of guy that I trust because Tim Poole is often running right along with the central narrative. Unless I'm getting him wrong, I'm pretty sure that he said election fraud was not really a real thing and that it wouldn't have changed the outcome of the election. So he's dead wrong about that. But let's go back to Zuckerberg. So he says in private that the vaccine modifies DNA. He says in public that that's not true and he's very glad they've cleared that up. But Facebook's own policy right now is that you are not allowed to say that on their platform, that the vaccine has an issue with modifying DNA. You're not even allowed to explore the topic. Mark Zuckerberg's platform, Facebook, does not allow the speech that Mark Zuckerberg engaged in, in private. Now, I'm obviously not a doctor. Vaccines are not one of my big issues. So I can't come down on one side or the other on this. There are tons of fact checks that say that the vaccine does nothing to your DNA, that the RNA is eliminated by your body and blah, blah, blah. So I don't know. But I do know that Mark Zuckerberg has conversations with extremely high-level individuals, including, I'm sure, people like Bill Gates, people from the WHO, everyone at high levels in government, in the old guard. These are people that Mark Zuckerberg is able to communicate with. And considering the fact that when he said that the vaccine could change your DNA, we were already months into the coronavirus event. Mark Zuckerberg's platform had been imagining itself as the arbiter of truth on all things science and medicine. What Fauci says goes. What Fauci says, Facebook says. What Facebook says goes for all its users. 
because we wouldn't want anyone to be telling the truth when they've already decided what the truth is, whether or not it's actually true. And what happens if we find out that Mark Zuckerberg's first statement was more informed than we're being led to believe right now? The story is that Mark Zuckerberg learned more as he went on. Maybe true, maybe true. But you would think that Zuckerberg has good enough information at all times, or at least he should, to be a multi-multi-billionaire of a company that controls all the information. You would think that he'd be able to talk to doctors if he had a question about that. Just knowing how the world works, I would think that he probably had talked to doctors at the point at which he made the original statement. So let's just explore what it means for that to be true, okay? I'm not saying it is true. I'm talking about the principles at work here. If it is true that the vaccine modifies DNA, then Mark Zuckerberg told the truth in private, lied in public, as did Anthony Fauci next to him. That would be the two of them lying intentionally about information they actually knew the truth of. Then a total shutdown and censorship of the truth on these platforms in coordination with the other platforms. That's extraordinarily dangerous. And it gets even more dangerous and more fucked up when you start thinking about where they are directing these vaccines. And they actually do have this concept of vaccine equity. That's not something I'm making up. In fact, here's an article from February 2nd, 2021 from globalcitizen.org. And we all know Global Citizen. That's like, hey, we're all just gonna be one. Let's have Beyonce sing Imagine at our festival at the park in New York, which I almost went to one year because I wanted to see Eddie Vedder perform. Yes, it's heartbreaking that I now have to contend with the fact that Eddie Vedder might be a commie. I don't like it at all. Vaccine equity, the idea that people in underserved communities get the vaccine first. The idea that people in underserved countries get the vaccine first. That's where we are right now. And the end of this Global Citizen article actually has one of the strangest and darkest quotes you can possibly imagine. So this is how they wrap it up. But amid the eagerness of speeding to the finish line, it's important for countries to remember that no one is safe until everyone is safe. Aside from the obvious dishonesty and total scientific illiteracy of that statement, that's also insane.
No one's safe until everyone is safe. That's actually not true. And it's, <laughs> it's impossible for that to be true because basically everyone who isn't over 70 years old with serious critical pre-existing conditions and near death, all of those people are already safe. Already safe. They are not going to die. The chances of them dying for the corona, from the coronavirus, even with the false uh, death statistics that we have now, the chances of someone my age, 42, in good health, the chances of me dying from the coronavirus are like one in 10,000 at most. It's really actually way lower than that. I'm not going to die from a cold. This is bullshit. Most of the world, we know that. Most of the world for a disease that only has the capacity to kill one or two out of every thousand people, even based on the bad statistics that they have now that we know don't factor in comorbidities, that we know don't factor in false positives. And we also know that the flu has completely, completely disappeared. Like less than 1% of normal flu season. So even with all those bad stats, we know that one or two out of a thousand people at worst have the potential of dying from coronavirus. So that basically means that 998 people are safe regardless of whether a thousand people are safe. This is fucking insane. Again, this goes with the moral that somehow we can stop death. The idea that our goal in the response to infectious disease is to stop death. We have to make sure that people in hospice who are already dying can't die from this disease and we're going to keep society shut down until then. And by the way, we're not only going to keep society shut down until then, we're going to keep society shut down until everyone gets a vaccine that they admit does not prevent you from getting the disease and does not give you lasting immunity and really doesn't do anything and also isn't a vaccine. That's where we are right now. Thanks, Bill Gates. That sounds genius. And if Zuckerberg is right, that it actually does change DNA and we have the vaccine equity in place, that means that if something goes wrong, who does it go wrong for? In other contexts, they call these people the most vulnerable. And in woke America, who do we designate as most vulnerable, right? Black, Hispanic? That's who gets pushed up in the order for vaccine availability based on vaccine equity. Now, I'm not interested in getting a vaccine at all because I don't need it. So I don't care who gets vaccines before me. Literally everyone else can have it first. I'm fine with that. 
What I'm not fine with is an experimental vaccine that they don't really know the long-term outcomes of being given to black and Hispanic people first. Because if something goes wrong there, what have we done? We've started an entirely race-based genocide so that we can be looked at as social justice heroes. Does that sound like a good idea? What could go wrong? Now, let's turn to Texas, where the state is being absolutely devastated by a winter storm, a very unsuspected winter storm. This article is from the San Antonio Express News. The writer is Gilbert Garcia. How Texans got left out in the cold by ERCOT and our political leaders. I'm going to jump down a little bit in this article, okay? Undoubtedly, we've experienced weather conditions that are way outside the norm for this state. In San Antonio, temperatures have intermittently dropped to single digits, and our neighborhoods were blanketed with four to five inches of snow. At the same time, these conditions are not so extreme that they should have been outside the realm of consideration or public planning. But this storm left 4 million Texans without power. This power outage was not the unforeseen product of downed transmission lines. It was the conscious implementation of statewide rolling blackout directive from the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, the agency responsible for the electric grid that covers 90% of the state's power usage. Grid failure, not storm damage, did this to us. It meant elderly people freezing in the dark while their food supplies spoiled. It meant families waiting for a few minutes of power that would enable them to prepare dinner before, before being thrown into the darkness again. For at least one San Antonio woman, it meant going out with the dialysis treatments that she regularly receives at home. There's plenty of blame to go around for this debacle. CPS Energy did a poor job of communicating with the residents of this city, many of whom struggled to find anyone with the utility who could offer them reliable information. Also, the blackouts in San Antonio did not roll in any coherent fashion or spread out the suffering. They seemed to concentrate on particular pockets of the city, meaning that some of us went through 36 straight hours without electricity, while others never lost power. Also, at a time when residents were advised to use their electricity sparingly to relieve stress on the grid, city officials allowed the Alamo Dome, the Convention Center, and the Tower of the Americas to be lit up on Monday night until enough San Antonians made us think about it. However, this failure belongs to ERCOT and the short-sighted politicians who deregulated the state's electric system two decades ago. ERCOT is an agency with zero accountability, negligible oversight from the Public Utility Commission, and five board members, including the chair and vice chair, who don't even live in Texas. ERCOT defenders, if any of them exist outside the agency's offices, would say that this week's power outages were simply the result of a weather-induced mix of generation reduction and demand increase. The reality is that ERCOT's adherence to an energy-only market rather than a capacity market helped put us in this position. And this is the part I really want to focus on. In capacity markets, agencies commit years in advance to pay energy providers for certain levels of power generation. 
With an energy only market, you pay as you go day by day based on what you need at the moment. In the Texas system, providers have no incentive to commit to enhancing infrastructure or building new power plants because they have no guaranteed long-term revenue to count on. The state's energy-only model works on scarcity, pumping up prices for power generators at moments when more supply is desperately needed. When you incentivize scarcity, you get scarcity. I think the Texas model in the long run is very vulnerable said Gordon Van Welly, the CEO of ISO New England in 2017. Now, this problem is made worse when you consider the overall climate change debate and the way these conversations normally go. Now, California has dealt with rolling blackouts for years. No reason why that should happen in the state with the seventh largest economy in the world, we're told. This first-rate state of technology and business and government still has blackouts in some of the biggest cities in the world that we're told can't be prevented unless all the residents turn off their own electricity. This is what we're told. We have to save it. And we're told that we're saving it because we're saving the environment. So the public utilities, the utility companies, have no incentive to do proper maintenance on their infrastructure, to upgrade their infrastructure, and to supply enough power so that if something bad actually happens, they can respond to it. Res people in Texas right now are boiling their water because the water may be tainted. How long can that last before it becomes an enormous problem? This is like seriously bad news here. And let's not forget that the fires in California over the last few summers, some of them were told were started by problems with the electricity infrastructure. Also, this changeover from the energy only market to the energy only market, sorry, rather than the capacity market is partly due to the transition to renewable energies. If they were purchasing the amount of electricity they would need they would get a better price on the energy that, they're, that they can't get right now. This would not be a problem if they were relying on the old system. So when we're told that we have to transition to renewables, this is what's happening. The renewables fail, and then there's no backup plan. And now we have parents and children literally dying from carbon monoxide poisoning as they try to get warm in the car. This should not be happening in the United States in 2021. This is happening because of incompetence, because of the incompetence of planners. These people who think that they know exactly how the world needs to be, if they can just marshal the resources and the money and then 
set everything up exactly how they want it. And yeah, there might be some hiccups. Not for us. I mean, we're okay. But yeah, I mean, if some people in Texas freeze and die or they get poisoned by the water supply or carbon monoxide because they're trying not to freeze, you know, that's just the price of saving the entire world from the way we think the climate might be someday. That's where we're at right now. This statist utopian progressivism is a fucking disease. This is a cancer on society. And no, I'm not saying that the people who believe these things are. I'm saying that the idea is. And now we have Jen circle back in her press conference today, blaming the power failure in Texas on coal and natural gas. And she's citing ERCOT as the authoritative source on this, that it wasn't actually a problem with renewables, despite the fact that there were helicopters spraying down windmills so that they could operate again. Interesting that it's not the renewables failing, but they're trying to fix the renewables to fix the problem. That makes sense. No segue here, just going to talk about an issue that I have been meaning to bring up for days, but the impeachment, you know, you know how it is. So in New Hampshire, there's a problem with the voting machines that they have discovered. And I'm going to read you the, a letter from New, New Hampshire State Senator Bob Giuda. And this is on a website called granitegrok.com, G-R-O-K. Maybe grok is a word that they use in New Hampshire. I have no idea what that means. But it's called the Wyndham Incident, Election Results versus Recount Totals. And here's the letter. After November's general election, Democrat Christy St. Laurent, or St. Laurent or whatever, Laurent, will make her like Eves, requested a recount of the Wyndham state representative race. The November 12th hand recount produced a 300 vote increase for all four Republican candidates and a 99 vote decrease for her. The recount didn't change the outcome, but no one could explain the huge 6% increase in the Republican votes or the 2% decrease in St. Laurent's. On November 16th, St. Laurent appealed the recount asking the ballot law commission for an investigation into the machine count error. On November 19th, the attorney general received a letter from Wyndham Town Council Bernard Campbell requesting investigation into the machine count error. The AG never replied to that request. At its November 23rd meeting, the Ballot Law Commission voted unanimously to request the Attorney General to look into the functioning of the voting machines on Election Day and to join in the request of the town for a general review and investigation of the circumstances involved. During a December 10th conference call with Secretary of State Gardner, he stated that he didn't know what happened, that New Hampshire didn't use Dominion machines, and expressed his support for an investigation into the machine count error. On December 13th, the Attorney General received a nine-page email from Dr. David Strang of Gilmanton, I guess that's a town there, asking for an investigation into the machine count error. On December 15th, I emailed the Attorney General a letter expressing my serious concern about the Wyndham machine count error, and we agreed to meet with Dr. Strang via WebEx to discuss his letter. 
During the January 4th, 2021 WebEx discussion, Attorney General, now Chief Justice, Gordon MacDonald, stated that he didn't have the statutory authority to investigate. That's a quote from Gordon MacDonald. However, on January 6th, under increasing scrutiny, his election law office requested and subsequently received town documents, but continued to assert that they didn't have the authority to check the ballots or investigate the machines, despite the language in RSA 76C, which specifically gives them that authority. On January 8th, I emailed a letter co-signed by Senator Birdsell, Wyndham is her district, to the attorney general asking for a planned completion date for the investigation, including the machines. We never received a uh, reply. On that same day, A.G. McDonald stepped down from his position, preparing to be confirmed as New Hampshire's next chief justice. During the most recent conference call on February 5th, Associate Attorney General Ann Edwards and Election Law Chief Nicholas Chong Yen reiterated the department's refusal to test the voting machines or count the ballots. They also refused to consider obtaining a court order to alleviate their concerns about statutory authority under RSA 76C. This isn't a partisan issue. It's a matter of election integrity. The town, the secretary of state, the Democrat candidate, the ballot law commission, a concerned citizen, and a Republican state senator asked the New Hampshire Department of Justice to investigate the largest machine count error in New Hampshire history. The department refused. This refusal by those charged with ensuring the integrity of our elections is inexcusable. Absent legal action, which would probably wind up in a Supreme Court led by Chief Justice McDonald, we will never know what happened in Wyndham or if any machine count errors occurred in the nearly 200 other towns that use those machines today. In choosing not to investigate the Wyndham incident, the Department of Justice failed our state and her citizens, both of whom had every right to expect a prompt, thorough investigation into the still unexplained largest recount error in state history. Now, that's a New Hampshire state senator saying all of that. And that's a New Hampshire state senator unable to get this recount and this audit and this investigation done for the citizens of New Hampshire. Again, if election integrity, if one person, one vote, if those were the priorities of this state and this country, these investigations would not be an issue. Why is it so difficult to get an investigation into the elections of 2020? Well, we all know the answer to that because anything that casts doubt on the 2020 election is going to have a nationwide impact that they cannot stop. And hopefully they're going to be confronted with the reality of this one way or another on Friday when the Supreme Court decides whether it's going to fully take on these Sidney Powell case the Linwood case and the case out of Pennsylvania where Sean Parnell got robbed. And by the way, we always forget that John James in Michigan got robbed too. And he is a black Republican. Why is there no uproar over the fact that he was defrauded out of a Senate seat? There should be. And now... Saving the best for last, Donald Trump yesterday put out a statement 
about Mitch McConnell. And it's genius and hilarious. So I'm going to read it. The Republican Party can never again be respected or strong with political, quote unquote, leaders like Senator Mitch McConnell at its helm. McConnell's dedication to business as usual, status quo policies, together with his lack of political insight, wisdom, skill, and personality, has rapidly driven him from majority leader to minority leader, and it will only get worse. The Democrats and Chuck Schumer play McConnell like a fiddle. They've never had it so good, and they want to keep it that way. We know our America First agenda is a winner, not McConnell's Beltway First agenda or Biden's America Last. In 2020, I received the most votes of any sitting president in history, almost 75 million. Every incumbent House Republican won for the first time in decades, and we flipped 15 seats, almost costing Nancy Pelosi her job. Republicans won majorities in at least 59 of the 98 partisan legislative chambers, and the Democrats failed to flip a single legislative chamber from red to blue. And in, quote unquote, Mitch's Senate, over the last two election cycles, I single-handedly saved at least 12 Senate seats, more than eight in the 2020 cycle alone. And then came the Georgia disaster, where we should have won both U.S. Senate seats, but McConnell matched the Democrat offer of $2,000 stimulus checks with $600. How does that work? It became the Democrats' principal advertisement and a big winner for them, it was. McConnell then put himself, one of the most unpopular politicians in the United States, into the advertisements. Many Republicans in Georgia voted Democrat or just didn't vote because of their anguish at their inept governor, Brian Kemp, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, and the Republican Party for not doing its job on election integrity during the 2020 presidential race. It was a complete election disaster in Georgia and certain other swing states. McConnell did nothing and will never do what needs to be done in order to secure a fair and just electoral system into the future. He doesn't have what it takes, never did, and never will. My only regret is that McConnell begged for my strong support and endorsement before the great people of Kentucky in the 2020 election, and I gave it to him. He went from one point down to 20 points up and won. How quickly he forgets. Without my endorsement, McConnell would have lost and lost badly. Now his numbers are lower than ever before. He is destroying the Republican side of the Senate and in doing so seriously hurting our country. Likewise, McConnell has no credibility on China because of his family's substantial Chinese business holdings. He does nothing on this tremendous economic and military threat. Mitch is a dour, sullen, and unsmiling political hack. And if Republican senators are going to stay with him, they will not win again. He will never do what needs to be done or what is right for our country. Where necessary and appropriate, I will back primary rivals who espouse making America great again and our policy of America first. We want brilliant, strong, thoughtful, and compassionate leadership. Prior to the pandemic, we produced the greatest economy and jobs numbers in the history of our country. And likewise, our economic recovery after COVID was the best in the world. We cut taxes and regulations, rebuilt our military, took care of our vets, became energy independent, built the wall and stopped the massive inflow of illegals into our country and so much more. And now illegals are pouring in, pipelines are being stopped, taxes will be going up and we will no longer be energy independent. This is a big moment for our country, and we cannot let it pass by using third-rate, quote-unquote, leaders to dictate our future. Now, that is a direct shot across the bow at Mitch McConnell and the Republican establishment. Beautifully done. Now, one thing to remember here is that you don't take 
shots at the power centers without knowing you can win. And of course, Donald Trump knows that he can win. The Republican base, the people who vote for Republicans are not with Mitch McConnell. We are embarrassed by Mitch McConnell. And he is going down. This is the first shot. And Trump's not going to stop hammering him. And Mitch McConnell is now receiving calls for his resignation and his stepping down as minority leader from people in Kentucky. And good. Mitch McConnell's statement after the impeachment ended was a disgrace. And the fact that he's bringing up possible criminal charges for Donald Trump and his handling of the January 6th incident at the Capitol is crazy, and it's going to come back to bite him. Mitch knows what happened that day. Mitch was involved with what happened that day. He's not going to escape this. Now, interestingly, CNN and other outlets reporting on this statement didn't bother with the big second paragraph where Trump talked about how massive the election successes were. And of course they wouldn't do that because that is counter to their narrative. CNN readers seeing that Republicans dominated everywhere in the country besides these specific places, that would sow doubt in their dumb commie child brains. And that is something we just can't have. I wonder if Facebook is censoring the full statement from Trump yet. I would imagine that they are at least demoting it within people's timelines. But this is huge. This is Trump showing everybody that he is still in control of the Republican Party. And of course, he is. Anyone who backs Mitch McConnell and people like Liz Cheney is going to meet the same fate. This isn't violence, it's not rioting, it's not aggression, it's not a threat. It's saying the country is not with you and the country is not with them. And if they go down this path, the country will remove them from office. That's how it works. If you don't serve the voters, you will be accountable to the voters. That's how it's supposed to work. The only thing that defeats that notion is election fraud which is why they're pushing so hard for it in the HR1 bill and why they are so quick to deny that anything like that could happen because it did happen. And it gave power to the people already in power and the people aligned with that power. That's exactly the opposite of how the system is supposed to work. So I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. And Joe Biden will never be president. Goodbye. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why, but I'm happy about it. 
The platform's great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. Please follow the podcast on Instagram and Parler at I'm Your Moderator. Soon I'll be up on Rumble with a video aspect. In the meantime, if you'd like to support the show, I have a Substack, I'm Your Moderator.substack.com, where you can donate, or you can donate at anchor.fm by searching Be Reasonable with your moderator, Chris Paul. I hope to see you soon. Back out on the rain. Backing as moderator for tonight's broadcast. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!